Please turn in your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. A couple weeks ago, Pastor King began the sermon series that we're in in 1 and 2 Thessalonians. And as you've seen over uh, the past few weeks, your pastors and, and perhaps a few others will be sprinkled in there and will be uh, sharing the preaching responsibilities through these books. We've learned that this... Uh, First and Second Thessalonians as some of the earliest of Paul's writings, and they give us a window into what this newly planted church in this city looked like, and they show us some of the struggles of both Paul and the church. They show us how they dealt with problems in the church, how they viewed the gospel message that was entrusted to them, and while our 21st century suburban context is very different from first century Thessalonica, there are things we can learn. Um, uh, Dr. Ligon Duncan just published a commentary on Thessalonians, and he said that we too need to heed the call to remember that we are waiting for Jesus, the risen Son of God, to return from heaven. He went on to say, we too need to remember that church leadership and church membership are first and foremost about love, love for God and love for his people, indeed, as well as in word. We too need to be exhorted to live to please God in our lives, whether in the home or at work. And we too need the gospel to shape us. We are so that we're imitators of Paul and of the Lord Jesus Christ, as, the, as Paul says elsewhere in his epistles. So this evening we're going to look at the first six verses of 1 Thessalonians 2. It's really kind of the first part of, of this uh, section of 1 through 12. Pastor Mir is going to pick up where I leave off and, and talk more about the ministry of the gospel and what that looks like. But this will serve, I hope, as an introduction for some of the details that will follow. But um, before we read this text, let me pray and ask God's blessing upon the reading and preaching of his holy and inerrant word. Let us pray. Gracious Lord, we need you tonight. We, we are so grateful for your word. We know that it is quick and powerful. We know that it is sharper than any two-edged sword. And we pray, oh God, that by your work, by your spirit, that you would do the, the work um, through your word in your people. We pray, O oh God, that the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts, Lord, would be acceptable in thy sight, O oh Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. 1 Thessalonians 2, beginning with verse 1. For you yourselves know, brothers, that our coming to you was not in vain. But though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. For our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive, but just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak, not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. For we never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed. God is witness. Nor did we seek glory from people, whether, they, whether from you or from others, Though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ. Amen. And we praise God that he has spoken to us in his holy and inerrant word. When I was in the early stages of preparing for this message, I, I noticed in this that Paul once again seemed to be making a defense of his gospel. 
If you read Galatians, he spends a lot of time in making a defense for his position in that book. And the thought came to me that it seems interesting that Paul spends so much time making these defenses for his position. We might be tempted to say, Paul, I'm sorry things were hard for you, but what does that matter to us today? Why are you spending so much of your epistle, of your letter that you're sending to whatever church it is going to, why are you spending so much time in this defense? Well, there is a message for us. There, is, there are lessons for us to learn. All scripture is breathed out by God. All scripture is inspired by God and is given to us for doctrine, for reproof, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, thoroughly furnished unto all good works. So we want to learn the lessons that we, that we have before us. His defense here is quite different than it is in other places, um, but we can learn much from it. And, and that's really our first point, a bold defense of gospel ministry. The other two points of the sermon are these, a precious gospel to proclaim and gospel motivation for life and ministry. So number one, a bold defense of gospel ministry. Two, a precious gospel to proclaim and thirdly, gospel motivation for life and ministry. Commentators disagree somewhat um, as to the severity of these accusations or exactly what they might have been. Uh, I don't want to spend a lot of time commenting on that, but we can see that Paul does offer reasons and defenses of his teaching and his action in verses 1 through 3. He says first that his coming to them was not in vain. It was not pointless or empty. That This word vain carries the idea of something lacking in purpose or lacking in earnestness. And indeed, Paul's ministry was anything but that. Anything but vain or lacking in earnestness. By God's grace, this new church in Thessalonica had been established just a year or two prior to the writing of this epistle. And his earnestness could be seen in, in various parts of his ministry, in, in the pace of his ministry, in the fact that he planted churches all across the, the, the region and around the Mediterranean Sea. You can see his earnestness coming through in his epistles. It, it doesn't take long to see Paul's gospel earnestness in his writings. We, he was thoroughly convinced that it was the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. He also points out in verse 3 that his message was not based upon selfish or impure motives. The city of Thessalonica was a seaport. It had, uh, commentators say, it had around 200,000 people in it at this time. It was one of the largest cities of the region. It was the capital of Macedonia. And it was common in those days that these traveling philosophers would come through and and try to win followers to their cause, or to really not to their cause, but to their personality, to themselves for selfish gain. Their idols, just like the idols of today, sex, money, and power is what they sought after. And Paul was accused of, of being one of them. And he's saying, no, that is not what drives me. I don't have those impure motives. His motive was to spread the good news of salvation that had delivered Paul himself from sin and misery. He was willing to be imprisoned and beaten for his faith in the gospel. He was willing to be a bivocational evangelist for the gospel so that he could tell the gospel and take it to those who had not heard. His motives were pure. And thirdly, we 
jump back to verse 2 and we see that, that, it's, that, that he, he likely was being accused of deserting the Thessalonians. We read in Acts 17 that while Paul was in that city, that the Jews there were, were jealous, they were angry, they got stirred up, and they, they hired other rabble-rousers to join them and, and bring about a riot. And, and the Christians in Thessalonica, for Paul and Silas's safety, whisked them away by night. And Paul had to make a hasty exit. Paul is saying in verse 2, he's, he's saying, I'm not afraid of persecution. He said, look how we were treated in Philippi. We were bold to preach the gospel. Remember, that's where they were stripped of their clothes there in Philippi and, and beaten and thrown in prison. Paul doesn't say it was a pleasant experience, but he didn't back down from it. He knew that God is sovereign and that nothing would or could happen to him outside of God's care and providence. Paul also remembered the, what happened and how God used that to save the Philippian jailer. We read about in Acts verse, uh, chapter 16. So even though Paul did make a hasty exit from Thessalonica, he didn't do it out of fear or because he was timid to declare the gospel. He, he says, I'm bold to do it. I'm not afraid of persecution. And his life showed it. So what can we learn from this defense of the gospel? I think there's at least four things that I want us to focus on, and they are these. Paul's openness, his boldness that we've mentioned, his perseverance, and his sincerity. First of all, his openness. Notice in the text, in just the six verses that we've read, the number of times where this little phrase, you know, is there. You see it in verse 1, you see it in verse 2, and again in verse 5. He calls them as his witnesses. He's saying, you know this about me. You are my witnesses. And not only that, he says that God is his witness. He has nothing to hide. He has ministered openly and in public. He said in Acts 24 that he had taken great pains to have a clear conscience toward God and man. Paul was not afraid to call God and these Christians as witnesses to his integrity. So let me ask you, do you have that kind of integrity? Are you willing to call witnesses around you to your openness and honesty? Are you willing to be confronted about your sin? Are you eager to repent when sin is exposed? Openness and honesty should be the mark of all believers. And certainly, and especially so, for those that seek to proclaim the gospel. We've talked about Paul's boldness, but let's just... Think about it a little bit here. The fact has already been established, but what was it that made Paul so bold? Well, he was kind of bold in his nature anyway. Before he was converted, what was he doing? He was, he was dragging Christians out of their home because he was so zealous for his Pharisaism, for what he thought was the truth, until God stopped him on the road to Damascus and changed his mind and changed his heart and changed his way. But he was emboldened from that experience because of the truth of Christ the Lord. He met the risen Savior there. He was not afraid of those who might bring persecution. He was and remained boldly confident in the gospel and its power to change lives because he had met Christ. We see also perseverance, a lesson in this defense the boldness led to perseverance. He persisted in moving forward to see the gospel advance. 
And finally, sincerity. We see that Paul was sincere. We, we've already seen he was not like those hucksters of his day that were only there to make a buck. His, his motives were pure. He sought God's glory. He sought the salvation of others. He sincerely desired to see the gospel to go to where it not, had not yet been proclaimed. So these characteristics, openness, boldness, perseverance, and sincerity should especially mark, mark the lives of, lives of those of us that preach the gospel, but also all believers. So I challenge us this evening to consider Paul's life and ask God to give us grace to grow in these characteristics. We have been challenged in another place to imitate Paul as he imitates Christ. So let us consider his defense and the lessons to be learned from it. Secondly, we have a precious gospel to proclaim. You may ask why I use this word precious and pull a, a word that's maybe not in our text. But, and I admit I'm looking somewhat to 1 Timothy 6.20 and riffing a bit off of what Paul said to young Timothy. Guard the deposit entrusted to you. Paul is saying he was entrusted with the gospel. And he is also reminding Timothy in that passage that he too was entrusted with the gospel. We guard things that are precious to us, don't we? The message of the gospel is a precious treasure entrusted to those who have received it by faith and those who are called to proclaim it. It was precious to Paul. We, we spoke about his conversion. He was gloriously saved there. He was saved to proclaim. After Paul was knocked to the ground on that day, Ananias was commanded to go to him, and the Lord told Ananias that Paul was a chosen instrument to carry his name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. He was saved to proclaim. And we too have been saved to proclaim the good news of the gospel of Christ. And by Paul's salvation and God's call upon him, he was approved by God, as it says there in verse 4. And he was entrusted with the gospel. He was a steward. It was given to him for a purpose and for him to safeguard. New Testament writers often give instructions on how to deal with those who would pollute or dilute the gospel. And a steward is one who guards that which has been entrusted to them. They don't allow it to be compromised or damaged. They see it as something precious. Paul took the gospel seriously. It was precious to him because of what it had done in his own life. He knew it was from God and it was precious to him because he knew the careful proclamation of it pleased God. He says in verse 4, we speak not to please men, but to please God who tests our hearts. He did not see God as one who was ready to smack him if he messed up, but he did it out of joy. He did it out of him being convinced of the power of the gospel. He didn't have the servile fear that we spoke of recently when we looked at the fear of God. He had a healthy fear of God. Just as an earthly father is pleased when his children obey him, so our heavenly father is pleased when we see the gospel as precious and seek to proclaim it rightly. Again, this applies particularly to gospel ministers, but I think this is broadly applicable to all believers. Is the gospel precious to you? Do you meditate often upon Christ and praise him for what he has done in his sinless life and his sacrificial death? 
Do you realize how serious that sin is and just what it cost our Savior to effectively deal with our sin upon the cross? The truth is, is that you are a much worse sinner than you thought you were. But you must remember that Christ is a greater Savior than you could ever imagine as well. We must be honest about our sin and we must make much of Christ. We must, we must meditate upon him. And I pray that the gospel would go, grow more precious to us each and every day and with each passing year. Finally and thirdly, we see in this passage gospel motivation for life and ministry. We could also call this how Paul does ministry. And really, it's the whole passage, verses 1 through 12, is about what the gospel does and how Paul does ministry. But I hope to speak in very practical terms under this point. What did Paul do and what are we called to do with this gospel that's been entrusted to us? Because just as it was entrusted to Paul, it's entrusted to us as well. Notice in verse 5 that Paul says that he and those ministering with him never came with words of flattery nor a pretext of greed. Again, he calls both the Thessalonian church and God as his witnesses to this fact. He hearkens back to those uh, so-called eloquent men who sought an audience for their own power, for money and for impure purposes and, and just for their own self-aggrandizement. But Paul would have none of that. He was so confident in his own intentions that he would call God as his witness. He only wanted to speak the truth. He did not pursue glowing adoration from a fan club or the dollar or even the praise of fellow ministers. His desire was simply to exalt Christ. And while we rightly see Paul as a, as a great stalwart apostle, but in his own day, he was not seen as that. He was typically not well respected. And he was okay with that. He saw himself and he said that he was the chief of sinners. He only wanted to see Christ glorified. And he only wanted God's smile and approval. He did not, as he says in verse 4, speak to please men, but rather to please God. Paul expands on this in another place in 1 Corinthians 4. And there he says, Moreover, it is required of stewards that be, they be found faithful. But with me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself, he says there. For I am not aware of anything against myself, but I am not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. And he finishes that section in verse 6 by saying, then each one will receive his commendation from God. Paul was not concerned about what other people thought. His eye was on the Lord Jesus Christ. He had been radically changed by the gospel and he was happy to be entrusted with the gospel because he knew his desire and he was confident that he was to please God and he was doing everything in his power to do that. And he says there in 1 Corinthians 4, I'm I don't, I'm forgetting about myself. I'm here to please God. God is my judge. I will receive my commendation from him. He worked for the smile of God and nothing else. Oh, that we would be so single-minded in our service to the kingdom. So let me ask you, do you speak to please God? Do you start your day asking God to, to guard your words and to speak the truth in love? Or do you speak to please man? 
What are the motives behind your speech? If we're honest, we would have to admit that we're often full of mixed motives. Because in my own Christian experience, I confess to you that, that yes, I want to please God, but I want to please myself. And often I am more concerned about pleasing man than pleasing God. There are often other motives present. But let me propose to you this evening that the more that you and I live before the face of God, the more we seek to live and abide in God's presence and recognize him in all aspects of our life, the less we will fear man. The more you fear God, the, more, the less you will fear man. Let me say that again. The more that we fear God, the less we will fear man. And part of fearing God is knowing that God is the one that tests our hearts, as it says in verse 4. Just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. <clears throat> we know that the heart is the seat of our affections, but I think what, is, what, what the apostle is getting at here is that it is this, the seat of our desires. It is the, the place of our inner motives. It is the seat of our wants, our, our sinful lust, but also our healthy desires. The Bible has a lot to say about the heart. Psalm 139 develops this concept of how God sees everything before a word is on my tongue. Lord, you know it all together. Before I was... When I was being knit together in my mother's womb, you knew me. This, this idea that God knows us in our inmost being, all of our inner motives. And it's often in the moments of trial and temptation that God tests us. Now, I want to be careful because God does not tempt us to sin. God is not the author of evil. He does not lead us into temptation but God does use temptation and he does use sin to drive us to him and to teach us discernment. I had a class from Dr. Ed Welch recently and, and he spoke about this idea of testing and, and he brought out the fact that we are prone to temptations. And, and I'm sure every believer here would say a hearty amen to that. You don't have to, but, but temptations is part of our Christian experience. We, are, we have a number of desires, some of them right and pure and God-given, but sometimes those desires can become unruly and become sinful temptations. I confess that sometimes when I'm, when I'm physically very hungry, I can, my, my desires become unruly, and, and that scoop of potatoes is much larger than it needs to be. But our desires can become unruly, and, and we are called to discipline our bodies, Paul tells us, and, and keep it under control. We, we need to live in a state of readiness. So when our desires become unruly, we need to beware. We need to recognize it. Our, our job is to train our desires, to learn to say no, to learn where those desires tend to get unruly. Life is intended to be lived within boundaries and restraints. The, the world tells us that we should throw off restraint, but that is not God's law and commandment. We, God has revealed himself in his word. 
and he's given us his commandments that reveal who he is, and some of those are fences, fences to keep us from going into places we should not go. It takes practice. It takes discipline and discernment. Titus 2 tells us the, the grace of God teaches us to say no to ungodliness. And Dr. Welch would often ask in these lectures that I was watching, he would say, who are you? And then he said, in this one, he said, you are one who is going into training. So as believers, we need to recognize that we are in training. And God tests our hearts in these moments. 1 Timothy 4.8 says, For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way. And 1 Corinthians 9.25, another one of these places where Paul is using this metaphor of an athlete to help us understand. He says, Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. And we know that athletic competitions in the first century prepared men for war. It conditioned their bodies for battle. And, and then Dr. Welch said this. He said, be an athlete of the soul. I love that. Be an athlete of the soul. Now, you are not all, I, I cannot tell you where the Bible tells you to spend three hours a week in the gym. But I can tell you that the Bible calls us to be athletes of the soul. And we are called to exercise ourselves to godliness. That is scriptural. So what does that have to do with Thessalonians and being entrusted with the gospel? Well, the connection is this. As believers and especially as gospel ministers, I'm preaching to myself tonight, we have been entrusted with the gospel. We're, we're called to imitate Paul as he imitates Christ. And we should desire to please God. That should be our highest aim. It should take up much of our thoughts. We are better stewards of the gospel as we walk closer and closer to Christ. The more we live, quorum Deo, that's the Greek or the, the Latin term from before, before the face of God. The more we live in that way and recognizing that God sees us and that everything is done before his face, the more we make that part of our life, the more... We love the gospel, and the more we see it as precious, because the more we see ourselves as sinners needing God's grace, and the more we recognize the glorious grace that is ours in Christ, the more we can effectively steward the gospel, we can more effectively steward the gospel as we prepare ourselves for the testing of our hearts. And that testing comes to make us like Christ. As, as hard as it is, and, and sometimes it is hard to say no to sin, but we are called to do just that so that we might glorify Christ, so that we can be, made, con be conformed to the image of Christ. And we must never think that we gain favor or salvation by our efforts. I am not preaching a salvation by works. Please don't think that I am. I don't want for a minute to lead anyone to think that. That's not the message here. But in light of the glorious salvation that has been given to us freely in Christ, we should make it our aim to please him. We know that the God that we desire to please and glorify is the same God who tests our hearts. So what do we do with this entrusted gospel? Well, three things in closing. First, we cherish it. We speak much about it. We think about it. We praise God for it. Secondly, we guard it. 
We don't attempt to water it down. We know it's the good news of salvation. We seek to keep it pure. And thirdly, we proclaim it. We don't have to keep it to ourselves. Just because we guard it doesn't mean we can't share it. It's the gift that keeps on giving. We are called to proclaim the gospel. The more we tell others about it, the more precious it should be to us. I, I thought the, the, the hymn writer of the song that we sang earlier must have been reading this passage where it talks about, I love to tell the story. And the more you tell it, the more precious it seems. And I hope that is our testimony tonight. As we close, I, I thought of how... Um, Social media gives us platforms for sharing the things that we want to share with people. And I'm, I'm no different than most people. I share the good things. And, you know, nobody wants to read if I'm having a bad day. So I just keep that to myself. But one of the things that, that people love to proclaim is, is the high points in their life. And if, if somebody gets engaged, boy, they just plaster all kinds of pictures all over social media to let you know the good news. And the, the, the bride-to-be is happy to show you that ring, just, just any, to anybody that could see it. We should be that way about the gospel. We should be so excited about what has happened in our life. The gospel is a high point in our life. And we should be bold to proclaim it. We should recognize that it's been entrusted to us. So let us cherish it, let us guard it, and let us proclaim it to those that need to hear the gospel. Let us pray.